do I despise its painted tinsel? I believe that God will supply all my need. Am I fearful about the morrow? I believe that prayer is an essential means unto growth in grace. Do I spend much time in the secret place? I believe that Christ is coming back again. Am I diligent in seeking to have my lamp trimmed and burning? Faith is evident by its fruits, works, effects. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. The Greek down here rendered evidence, proving in the revised version, with test in the margin, is derived from a verb which signifies to convince, and that by demonstration. It was used by the Lord Jesus when he uttered that challenge, Which of you convicteth me of sin? John 8.46 The noun occurs in only one other place, namely Second Timothy 3.16. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof or conviction, to give assurance and certainty of what is true. Thus the word evidence in our text denotes that which furnished proof, so that one is assured of the reality and certainty of things divine. Faith then is first the hand of the soul which lays hold of the contents of God's promises. Second, it is the eye of the soul which looks out toward and represents them clearly and convincingly to us. To unbelievers, the invisible, spiritual, and future things revealed in God's word seem dubious and unreal for they have no medium to perceive them. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the child of God sees him who is invisible. Hebrews 11.27 Perhaps we might illustrate it thus. Two men stand on the deck of a ship gazing toward the far horizon. The one sees nothing. The other describes the details of a distant steamer. The former has only his unaided eyesight. The latter is using a telescope. Now just as a powerful glass brings home to the eye an object beyond the range of natural vision, so faith gives reality to the heart of things outside the range of our physical senses. Faith sets divine things before the soul in all the light and power of demonstration, and thus provides inward conviction of their existence. Matthew Henry said, Faith demonstrates to the eye of the mind the reality of those things which cannot be discerned by the eye of the body. Unquote. The natural man prefers a life of sense and to believe nothing more than 
that which is capable of scientifical demonstration. When eternal things, yet invisible, are pressed upon him, he is full of objections against them. Those are the objections of unbelief, stirred into activity by the fiery darts of Satan, and naught but the shield of faith can quench them. But when the Holy Spirit renews the heart, the prevailing power of unbelief is broken. Faith argues, God has said it, so it must be true. Faith so convinces the understanding that it is compelled by force of arguments unanswerable to believe the certainty of all God has spoken. This conviction is so powerful that the heart is influenced thereby and the will moved to conform thereto. This it is which causes the Christian to forsake the pleasures of sin, which are only for a season. Hebrews 11.25 Because by faith he has laid hold of those satisfying pleasures at God's right hand, which are forevermore. Psalm 16.11 To sum up the contents of verse 1, to unbelief, the objects which God sets before us in His Word seem unreal and unlikely, nebulous and vague. But faith visualizes the unseen, giving substantiality to the things hoped for and reality to the things invisible. Faith shuts its eyes to all that is seen and opens its ears to all God has said. Faith is a convictive power which overcomes carnal reasonings, carnal prejudices, and carnal excuses. It enlightens the judgment, molds the heart, moves the will, and reforms the life. It takes us off earthly things and worldly vanities and occupies us with spiritual and divine realities. It emboldens against discouragements, laughs at difficulties, resists the devil, and triumphs over temptations. It does so because it unites the soul to God and draws strength from Him. Thus faith is altogether a supernatural thing. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Verse 2, having described the principal qualities of faith, the Apostle now proceeds to give further proof of its excellency as is evident from the opening four. It is by faith we are approved of God. By the elders is signified those who lived in former times, namely the Old Testament saints, Included among the fathers, or chapter 1, verse 1. It was not by their amiability, sincerity, earnestness, or any other natural virtue, but by faith that the ancients obtained a good report. This declaration was made by the apostle with the purpose of 
reminding the Hebrews that their pious progenitors were justified by faith. And to the end of the chapter, he says that faith was the principle of all their holy obedience, eminent services, and patient sufferings in the cause of God. Therefore, those who were spiritually united to them must have something more than physical descent from them. For by it the elders obtained a good report, observed the beautiful accuracy of Scripture. It was not for their faith, nor could it be without it, but by their faith. It was not a cause, yet it was a condition. There was nothing meritorious in it, yet it was a necessary means. Let us also observe that faith is no new thing, but a grace planted in the hearts of God's elect from the beginning. Then, as now, faith was the substance of things hoped for, promises to be accomplished in the future. The faith of Abel laid hold of Christ as truly as does ours. God has had but one way of salvation since sin entered the world. By grace, through faith, not of works. They are grossly mistaken who suppose that under the old covenant people were saved by keeping the law. The fathers had the same promises we have, not merely of Canaan, but of heaven. See chapter 11, verse 16. The Greek for obtained a good report is not in the active voice, but the passive, literally, were witnessed of an honorable testimony being borne to them. Compare verses 4 and 5. God took care that a record should be kept complete in heaven, in part transcribed in the scriptures, of all the actings of their faith. God has borne witness to the fact that Enoch walked with him, Genesis 5.24, that David was a man after his own heart, 1 Samuel 13.14, that Abraham was his friend, 2 Chronicles 27. This testimony of his acceptance of them because of their faith was borne by God not only externally in his word, but in their consciences. He gave them his spirit who assured them of their acceptance. Psalm 51.12 and Acts 15.8 Let writer and hearer learn to esteem what God does. Let us value a Christian not for his intellect, natural charms or social position, but for his faith evidenced by an obedient walk and godly life. We cannot do better in closing our comments upon verse 2 than by giving the practical observations on it of John Owen. 1. Instances or examples 
are the most powerful confirmations of practical truths. Two, they who have a good testimony from God shall never want reproaches from the world. Three, it is faith alone which, from the beginning of the world, or from the giving of the first promise, was the means and way of obtaining acceptance with God. Four, the faith of true believers from the beginning of the world was fixed on things future, hoped for, and invisible. Five, that faith whereby men please God acts itself in a fixed contemplation on things future and invisible, from which it derived an encouragement and strength to endure and abide firm in profession against all opposition and persecutions. 6. Men may be despised, vilified, and reproached in the world, yet if they have faith, if they are true believers, they are accepted with God, and He will give them a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Verse 3. There is a much closer connection between this verse and the two preceding ones than most of the commentators have perceived. The apostle is still setting forth the importance and excellency of faith. Here he affirms that through it, its favored possessors are enabled to apprehend things which are high above the reach of human reason. The origin of the universe presents a problem which neither science nor philosophy can solve, as is evident from their conflicting and ridiculous attempts. But that difficulty vanishes entirely before faith. Through faith, we understand. Faith is the vehicle or medium of spiritual perception. If thou wouldst believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. John 11.40 Which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. 1 Timothy 4.3 Faith is not a blind reliance on the word of God, but an intelligent persuasion of its veracity, wisdom, beauty. So far from Christians being the credulous fools the world deems them, they are the wisest of earth's inhabitants. The fools are they who are slow of heart to believe. Luke 24:25. Through faith in what has been revealed in the scriptures, we know that the universe is created and fashioned by God. Matthew Henry said, What does faith give us to understand concerning the worlds, that is, the upper, middle, and lower regions of the universe? 1. That they were not eternal, nor did they produced themselves, but they were made by another. 
Two, that the maker of the world is God. He is the maker of all things, and whosoever is so must be God. Three, that he made the world with great exactness. It was a framed work in everything duly adapted and disposed to answer its end and to express the perfections of the Creator. Four, that God made the world by His Word, that is, by His essential wisdom and eternal Son, and by His active will, saying, Let it be done, and it was done. Five, that the world was thus framed out of nothing, out of no pre-existent matter, contrary to the received maxim that out of nothing, nothing can be made, which, though true of creative power, can have no place with God, who can call things that are not as if they were, and command them into being. These things we understand by faith. John Gill said that the world's were framed by the word of God. The word for worlds in the Greek signifies ages, but by a metonymy it is here used of the universe, the celestial world with its inhabitants, the angels, the starry and ethereal worlds with all that is in them, the sun, moon, stars, and fowls of the air, the terrestrial world with all upon it, man, beast, and so forth, and the watery world, the sea, and all that is therein. These worlds were made at the beginning of mundane time and have continued throughout all ages. John Owen said, the apostle accommodated his expression to the received opinion of the Jews, and their way of expressing themselves about the world. Olam denotes the world as to the subsistence of it and as to its duration. Unquote. We do not then espouse Bullinger's strange view of this verse. The worlds or universe were framed, that is, were adjusted and disposed into a wise and beautiful order by the word of God. That expression is used in a threefold sense. First, there is the essential and personal word, the eternal Son of God, John 1.1. Second, there is the written ever-living word, the Holy Scriptures, John 10.35. Third, There is the word of power or manifestation of the invincible will of God. It is the last mentioned that is in view in Hebrews 11.3. The Greek for word is not logos, as in John 1.1, but rima, as in Hebrews 1.3. Rima signifies a word spoken. The reference is to God's imperial fiat, His effectual command as throughout Genesis 1. God said, 
the manifestation of his invincible will, let light be, and light was. For he spake, and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 33, 9 An illustration of the word of his power, see Hebrews 1, 3, is found in John 5, 28 and 29. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. There is some difficulty in the Greek in ascertaining the precise meaning of this phrase. Personally, we are inclined to regard it as referring back to Genesis 1-2. The verse before us concerns more directly the fashioning of the present heavens and earth, though that necessarily presupposes their original creation. The elements were submerged and darkness enshrouded them. The practical force of this verse to us is, our faith does not rest upon what appears outwardly, but is satisfied with the bare word of God. Since God created the universe out of nothing, how easily can He preserve and sustain us when there is not anything, to our view, in sight? He who can call worlds into existence by the word of His power can command supplies for the neediest of His creatures. Arthur Pink Continued in the September Studies Study number 3 The Life of David His Wanderings The picture which the Holy Spirit has given in Scripture of David's character and life is a composite one. It is somewhat like a painting in which the dominant colors are white, black, and gold. In many details, David has left an example which we do well to follow. In other respects, he presents a solemn warning which we do well to heed. In other features, he was a blessed type of Christ. Thus the meeting together of these three distinct things in David may well be likened unto a composite picture. Nor do we exercise a wrong spirit, providing our motive be right, or sully the grace of God by dwelling upon the sad defects in the character of the psalmist or the failures in his life. Rather will the Spirit's design be realized and our souls be the gainers. If we duly take to heart and turn them into earnest prayer, that we may be delivered from the snares into which he fell. At the close of our last article, we saw how that to escape the murderous hatred of Saul, David took refuge with Samuel at Naoth. Thither did his relentless enemy follow him, but wondrously did God interpose. Three times the messengers which the king had sent to arrest David were restrained and awed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only so, but when Saul himself came in person, 
the Spirit of God subdued and threw him into a kind of ecstatic trance. One would have thought that this signal intervention of God for David had quietened all his fears and filled his soul with praise and thanksgiving unto him who had shown himself strong on his behalf. Was it not plain that God did not intend Saul to harm the one whom his prophet had anointed? Ah, but David, too, was a man of like passions with us, and unless divine grace wrought effectually within him, no outward providences would avail to spiritualize him. The moment the Lord leaves us to ourselves to try us, to show what we are, a fall is certain. Instead of continuing at Naoth, quietly waiting the next token of God's goodness, David became alarmed and took matters into his own hands. Instead of being occupied with the divine perfections, David now saw only a powerful, inveterate, bloodthirsty enemy. Accordingly, the next thing we read is, And David fled from Naoth in Ramah, chapter 20, verse 1. True, he fled from Saul, but he also turned his back upon Samuel, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before thy father, that he seeketh my life? It is solemn to see David preferring a conference with Jonathan rather than with the prophet of God. As usual, the key is hung upon the door. The opening verse of this chapter explains to us what is found in the later ones. It was natural that David should turn for help to a friend, but was it spiritual? Do not the questions David put to Jonathan reveal to us the state of his heart? The I, mine, my, my, show plainly enough the condition of his mind? God was not now in all his thoughts, yea, he was not mentioned at all. The repeated attempts of Saul upon his life had thoroughly unnerved him, and his, There is but a step between me and death, chapter 20, verse 3, intimates plainly that unbelieving fears now possessed him. Ah, David needed to turn unto an abler physician than Jonathan, if his feverish anxiety was to be allayed. Only one was sufficient for laying a calming and cooling hand upon him. Oh, how much the saint loses when he fails to acknowledge the Lord in all his ways. Proverbs 3.6 But worse, when communion is broken, when the soul is out of touch with God, temptation is yielded unto and grievous sin is committed. It was so here. Afraid 
that Saul's anger would return when his absence from the table was noted. But fearful to take his place there, David bids Jonathan utter a deliberate lie on his behalf. Chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. May this speak loudly to each of our hearts, warning of the fearful fruits which issue from severed fellowship with the Lord. The first false step David had taken was in marrying the daughter of Saul, for it is evident from the sacred narrative that she was no suited partner for the man after God's own heart. His second mistake was his fleeing from Naoth and thus turning his back upon the prophet of God. His third failure was to seek aid of Jonathan. The true character of his friend was exhibited on this occasion. Seeing David so perturbed, he had not the moral courage to acknowledge the truth, but sought to pacify him with a prevarication. Chapter 20, verse 2. Surely, Jonathan could not be ignorant of Saul's having thrown the javelin at David, of the instructions given to the servants to slay him, chapter 19, verse 11, of the messengers sent to arrest him, verse 20, and of his going after David in person, verse 22. But all doubt is removed by Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Verse 1. Jonathan deliberately equivocated in chapter 20, verse 2, and evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Thus it was here. David lied too. Chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. We do not propose to go over this 20th chapter verse by verse, for we are not now writing a commentary upon 1 Samuel. A plan was agreed upon by Jonathan, whereby he should ascertain the latest attitude of his father and acquaint David with the same. A solemn covenant was entered into between them. Jonathan here, and David much later, 2 Samuel 9, faithfully carried out its terms. The words, David hid himself in the field, verse 24, and compare verse 35 and 41, at once expose his lie in verse 6, though the commentators have glossed over it. When David was missed from the king's table, an inquiry was made. Jonathan repeated the lie which David had suggested to him. Thereupon, the king reviled his son and declared that David shall surely die. Verse 31. When Jonathan sought to expostulate and ask why David should be slain, Saul threw his javelin at him. The meeting between Jonathan and David in the field and their affectionate leave-taking is touchingly described in verses 41 and 42. Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, chapter 21, verse 1. When a real saint is out of touch with God, 
When he is in a backslidden state, his conduct presents a strange enigma, and his inconsistent ways are such as no psychologist can explain. But much that is inexplicable to many, even to ill-informed believers, is solved for us by Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Here we have set forth the conflict of the two natures in the Christian, the irreconcilable opposition between the two mainsprings of conduct, the flesh and the spirit. Accordingly, as one or the other of these two principles is actuating and dominating the saint, such will be his course of action. The final clause of this verse has a double force. The presence of the flesh hinders the spirit from completely realizing its desires in this life. Romans 7, 15-25 The presence of the spirit prevents the flesh from fully having its way. Galatians 5.17 supplies the key to many a mysterious experience in the life of a Christian and sheds much light on the checkered histories of Old Testament saints. We might add many paragraphs at this point by illustrating the last sentence from the lives of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and so forth. But instead, we will confine our attention to the leading subject of these articles. In his meeting, The Attacks of the Wild Animals, chapter 17, verses 34 to 36, in his devotion for the tabernacle, Psalm 132, verses 1 to 7, In his engagement with Goliath, the spirit was uppermost in David and therefore was the Lord before his heart. There had been severe testings of courage and faith, but his trust in the Lord wavered not. Then followed a season in the king's household where it was much harder to preserve this spirituality. Then Saul turned against him and again and again sought his life. Deprived of the outward means of grace, David's faith flagged, and as it flagged, fears replaced it, and instead of being occupied with the Lord, his powerful foe filled his vision. In his flight from Saul, David first sought unto Samuel, which shows that the flesh in him was not completely regnant as it never is in a truly regenerate soul. Sin shall not have dominion over you, Romans 6.14. It shall not render you its absolute slave. But in his flight from Samuel and his turning to Jonathan for help, we see the flesh more and more regulating his actions, still plainer manifested in the falsehood which he put into his friend's mouth. 
And now, in his flight unto Ahimelech, and the manner in which he conducted himself, the anointed eye may discern the conflict which was at work within him. It now seemed clear unto David that no change for the better was to be expected in Saul as long as the king was alive, he was in danger. An outcast from the court, he now became a lonely wanderer, but before he journeyed farther afield, his heart was first drawn to Nob, whither the tabernacle had been removed. Various motives and considerations seemed to have moved David in his repairing to Nob. Foreseeing that he must now be an exile, he wished to take leave of the tabernacle, not knowing when he should see it again. It is plain from many of his psalms that the sorest grief of David during the time of his banishment was his isolation from the house of God and his restraint from public ordinances. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 84, 1, 2, and 10, and compare chapter 42, verses 3 and 4, and so forth. Second, it seems clear from 1 Samuel 22, 10 that David's purpose was to inquire of the Lord through the high priest to obtain directions from him as to his path. Third, from what follows here, it appears that food was also his quest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, chapter 21, verse 2. Evidently, the high priest had heard of David's having fallen under the displeasure of Saul, and so concluded that he was a fugitive. Knowing the type of man the king was, Ahimelech was fearful of endangering his own life by entertaining David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? That there were some young men with him is clear from verse 4, and also Matthew 12.3. Yet, having won such renown both in camp and court, it might well be expected that David should be accompanied by a suitable equipage. The disdain which the high priest showed for David, the outcast, illustrates the merciless attitude of the world toward a fallen and impoverished hero. And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Verse 2. Here again, we see David guilty of a gross untruth. How solemn to find the psalmist of Israel telling a deliberate lie at the threshold 
of the house of God, whither he had come to inquire the mind of the Lord. Verily, each one of us has real need to pray, Remove from me the way of lying. Psalm 119.29 David's heart quailed under the embarrassing question of the priest, and he who had dared to meet single-handed the Philistine giant was now afraid to speak the truth. Ah, there cannot be the calm and courage of faith where faith itself is inoperative. Elijah shrank not from meeting the four hundred prophets of Baal, yet later he fled in terror from Jezebel. Peter dared to step out of the ship onto the sea, yet trembled before a maid. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. It is easier to trust God in days of sunshine than in times of gloom and darkness. B.W. Newton said, David had often indeed before known difficulty and danger. From the day of his conflict with Goliath, he had known little else. But then there was this difference. In former difficulties, he had been enabled to triumph. Some ray of Brightness had gilded every cloud. Some honor awaited him out of each affliction. But now God seemed no longer to interfere on his behalf. The fell enmity of Saul was allowed to take its course, and God interfered not, either to subdue or to chasten. He appeared no longer to intend raising David above circumstances, but to allow him to be overcome by them. David's heart seemed unable to bear this. To trust God whilst overcoming is one thing. To trust Him when being overcome is another. Unquote. David now asks Ahimelech for five loaves of bread. Verse 3. Bear in mind that he stood at the door of the tabernacle and not before the priest's personal residence. All that was to hand were the twelve loaves which had rested for a week on the golden table in the sanctuary, and which, being replaced at once by twelve more, became the property of the priests and their families. Assuring Ahimelech that he and his men met the requirements of Exodus 19.15, David pressed for the bread being given to him. To what a low estate had the son of Jesse fallen. Now that Saul's rooted malice was generally known, the people would be afraid and unwilling to befriend him. In Matthew 12 we find the Lord Jesus vindicating this action, which shows us that the ordinances of religion may be dispensed with where the preservation of life calls for it. Ritual observance must give way to moral duties, and in the case of urgent providential necessity, that is permissible which ordinarily may not be done. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, 
detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. Verse 7. And yet, in his hearing, David had preferred his urgent request. Surely, natural common sense would have prompted him to act with more prudence. Ah, my hearer, when the saint is in a backslidden state of soul, he often acts more foolishly than does the man of the world. This is a righteous judgment of God upon him. He has given us his word to walk by, and that word is one of wisdom, containing salutary counsel. We turn from it at our peril and irreparable loss. To lean unto our own understanding is to court certain disaster. Yet when communion with God is broken, this is exactly what we do. Then it is that we are suffered to reap the bitter fruits of our evil ways and made to feel the consequences of our folly. Next, David asked Ahimelech for a weapon and was told that the only one available was the sword of Goliath which had been preserved in the tabernacle as a monument of the Lord's goodness to Israel. When told of this, David exclaimed, There is none like that. Give it to me. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.